The following content is meant purely for educational and informational purposes and should not be relied upon as financial, investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. This is the Fundamentals Podcast, where we demystify crypto and help you navigate this ever-evolving internet-native economy. In today's episode, we're joined by Yevgeny, the founder of Re7 Capital, a fund that specializes in DeFi R&D and liquid crypto investment strategies. We cover the vast arena of DeFi, exploring everything from generating yield to managing risks. We discuss the intrinsic value of crypto, how investors should approach valuing multi-dimensional crypto assets, and what Re7's edge is in the space. Tune in as we dive into exciting trends, case examples from ReSeven's portfolio, the best KPIs to look at when assessing an investment opportunity, the challenges we face as an industry, the critical need for on-chain data analytics, and ReSeven's framework for managing risks within DeFi. Hey, Yevgeny, welcome to the Fundamentals Podcast. It's great to get to speak with you today. Hi, Oscar. Thank you for having me. Of course. Today, we're going to dive into the world of everything related to DeFi, pretty much, see how far we can get within an hour. And especially looking forward to speaking about the RE7 risk index as well that you put out late last year. But before we start diving into the details there, it would be great if you can just give us a quick overview of the high level of everything related to RE7 capital, fund specs, and your general approach to the space. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with a boring disclaimer that none of this is financial advice, so on and so forth. So yeah, I, I founded Reseven Capital, started setting it up about three years ago. And the idea at the time was, was pretty straightforward that, you know, being an early DeFi uh, participant, it became pretty clear that this is something tangible, something real, something that can grow phenomenally and could be, you know, the foundation of the, you know, financial system 2.0. And obviously it was very chaotic at the time, full of messiness and excitement. But even if you were only deploying stable coins across DeFi, at the time, you could be generating, you know, 30, 50% yields without taking crazy risks. And with rates being zero at the time, it felt like an interesting arbitrage to explore. So my thinking was, why didn't I set up a fully compliant regulated fund where people would, professional people only, would deploy their capital with the objective of generating interest and yield? which would be much, much higher than they would get elsewhere. And it's a completely different source of risk and source of return. So the hope and the objective was that by the virtue of combining, you know, the TradFi experience that, that we have with early kind of DeFi crypto knowledge, we can create something unusual and something different from uh, a more traditional VC structure and leverage, kind of close that gap of, you know, marrying the, the best of the DeFi world and the best of the TradFi world. That's how we started. Fast forwarding to today, where you know we have a you know a proper team working twenty four seven, looking on chain, looking for for opportunities on both the yield and kind of directional side. So we're now running you know a market neutral DeFi yield fund and ETH denominated yield fund. We work very closely with a lot of foundations in the space, helping them bootstrap their DeFi ecosystems. And we also run a liquid venture strategy where we capitalize on all the knowledge and all the data tooling that we have accumulated and making directional bets using that as an edge. So it's kind of a multi-dimensional ecosystem that we have created with DeFi sitting at its core and powering various business streams effectively. That's great. Thank you for the background there. Now you started off focusing on yields and later introduced also liquid venture to your operations as a fund in this space. Was that just a natural development or evolution of RE7 as a fund? Or would you say it was a result of yields going down and you wanting to become more multidimensional as a capital allocator? So the, the thinking has been a little bit different. So 
you know, no one goes into the complexities and the stress of the crypto world just for the yield, right? If you're turning this into your profession, then usually you either aspire to create a business that you can then, you know, attack business, which you can sell or monetize, or you want to run an investment strategy where you can deliver, you know, 10, 20 X or more to, you know, to yourself and to your investors. And that's usually how people start, but being a little bit, you know, stubborn, the thinking originally has been to do something that other people are not doing and build a business around the solid foundation because crypto is obviously very, very cyclical. And given what happened over the last couple of years, it doesn't look like that cyclicality is going anywhere. Maybe when these institutions come, but that's still, you know, hopefully soon, but quite far away, or at least it feels far away. So we didn't want to be in a position where we will launch a, you know, a DeFi fund and then it does very well. And then it does minus 90%. And then the business has to basically shut down, right? So we want to create a solid foundation where you can keep generating yield no matter what. And also the timing of our launch was, you know, not before the bull market started, but kind of in the middle of it. So the thinking was, let's create a solid product that works no matter what happens in the world. And on the back of that, we can then grow and leverage that, that knowledge. So we are what I kind of like to call it an all weather firm. So we want to run investment products, which will do at least one of them will do well, no matter what happens in the world. So if the market is going up or is about to go up, great. You go into liquid venture strategy. Fast forward three years from now or whatever number of years from now, the market tops out. You want to recycle your profits into a market neutral strategy and survive as the market crashes and then recycle it again. Then that's, that's what we want to, we, we want to deliver. So we want to be cycle agnostic as a business. And that, that's really why we've been able, so we, you know, we've been able to grow even this year. So we have more assets than we had before FTX happened. And we were able to materialize that because we run these products, which are kind of orthogonal to each other. So that was the business decision. And then the edge, you know, what is the edge, right? The edge decision is that we have a, a team, a group of people who are spending their time on chain 24 seven and have been doing that for the last few years. So being an operator in the space allows us to see things at a slightly different angle because we built our own tooling, we built our own, you know, bots and other things. So we have both engineering and traditional financial expertise in house. So when people ask, you know, what is your edge, right? And someone says, well, I've been very early in a specific ecosystem. That's my edge. Or someone says, well, I. I run an, an audit firm and I know everything about, you know, every single project, which I analyze, that's an edge. So our edge is being hands-on operators in the space, which gives us visibility that others may not necessarily have because they might just be running, you know, funds without those ancillary services. Uh, the yields have come down obviously, and at the same time, treasuries have gone up. So the spread has compressed, but we're still able to deliver double digit, double digit yields and even in the year like last, we've been able to protect investor capital. So then if you have yield products, which don't lose money in a horrible year and do double digit yields in a, let's call it a mediocre year, then hopefully when you have a good year that will shine as well. So that that's kind of our ethos and how we approach all of this. I think that is a really great approach and one that a lot of both projects and investors struggle with in this cyclical market. How do you build something that is sustainable and able to generate returns throughout both the bull and the bear. So that's great to hear. And your edge as well, I'd say being early to a market or a market sector isn't the most sustainable edge. So the one that uh, you have built sounds pretty strong. You can never underestimate the importance of solid 
a solid foundation. Yeah, we try, we try. Now, if we move on to your general thesis around investing in Web3, I'd love if you can kind of walk me through what you see as the current state of the markets and what data points stand out that support it being a lucrative opportunity from an investor's point of view? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess here we need to separate kind of the macro from the micro, right? So when it comes to macro, I'm not going to give you any insights that you can't just, you won't be able to Google, right? We, you know, like most of our team has, you know, TreadFi experience. I used to work in a hedge fund in banking. So we all have our opinions, but we're not really here to try and trade on the back of an ETF announcement or the rates or Yellen or, you know, or the SEC. So we try to look at that obviously as a as a guiding light, but the only thing that affects is how we think about the pace of our deployment when it comes to our liquid venture strategy, right? Because if we believe that the bull market isn't about to come, then great, let's go all in. If we don't believe that's the case for a long term, well, for a while, then we would be more defensively positioned, but still invested in every single name that we love. So the way how we think about it is. Even though we invest in liquid assets, we don't think of ourselves as traders or even as a traditional kind of long-only firm, because obviously crypto assets go liquid at a very different stage in phase in their maturity. So in the traditional world, you have, you know, let's call it venture, growth equity, and post-IPO. And here tokens exist at growth equity or a younger stage. So we simply think of ourselves as slightly later stage venture investors, and then you need, all you care about is the business, right? Is the business scalable? Is the team great? Is the tech solid? So on and so forth. So what we look for are people, products, and projects that can deliver something useful both today in the current state of, in, in my mind, crypto is still a sandbox, right? It's a pretty small number of people, you know, playing with each other and experimenting and building tooling. So we're still in the preparation for that mass adoption phase. So obviously you want to invest in something which, you know, even when mass adoption comes, you can do very well, but also you can't afford to be theoretical and patient about it. You still need to have a product market fit in the meantime. It's not very easy to find businesses that can cater to the crypto natives as their MVP whilst being professional and kind of forward-looking enough to say, to treat it as a foundation to then go and put on a suit and have a conversation in the, you know, in those very institutions that they were to, to disrupt. You're 100% you're correct on that one. It is a bit of a hard balancing act. Uh, I can say from both Token Terminal's perspective as well, when we interact with and work very closely with the projects at the most grassroots level, and then also put on the suits and go speak to the institutions, slowly trying to understand and enter this space and act as kind of an interpreter in between them. So. I do understand the challenges that come with it, but it is also, it is such important work. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's the only way how we can really scale, right? So our industry cannot scale 100x. And I'm not talking about the prices, right? There will be a lot of tokens that do 100x, you know, tomorrow. But if we really want for it to grow fundamentally, because if it doesn't grow fundamentally, then you, you and I are out of a job in a few years. So we do need, we do need it to scale. And yeah, that's the only way how it can grow. Yeah. We need more education and like, understanding on both sides of the table about the other side's perspective, just so we can kind of converge, get a bit closer to each other. So we really understand what the, what the fundamentals are of what is going on. Now, speaking kind of of the fundamentals, we are, I would optimistically say, slowly getting to a stage that even people outside of the crypto native masses are starting to understand that 
there might be some intrinsic value uh, in these crypto projects. They are generating some value. So uh, as an investor, of course, you've seen that a long time ago. Could you break down what intrinsic value in crypto means to you? That, that's a good question. And, you know, whenever I start uh, discussing either our funds or crypto in general with people outside of the space, so let's say, you know, professional allocators and investors, the first thing I always do is I take a step back and I make sure we use the correct terminology, right? Because when people, when you and I say the word crypto, even we are probably thinking about slightly different things, right? In my mind, I immediately visualize something like a Uniswap interface. And you may be thinking about a project you onboard in the token terminal, but for your, for the person outside of the industry, when they hear crypto, they think of, you know, FTX and SBF. So it, it's important to seg separate the technology itself. It's important to separate the industry and the asset class, right? Because as we both know, you know, I would say that I know Bitcoin, Binance and Uniswap have nothing in common, right? But you can say they're all crypto, right? But they're very, very different things. So I, I'm interested in crypto from a standpoint that this is a fintech squared, right? So if we think of a fintech industry, which is basically revolutionizing mainly front end, as they call it in, in finance, right? So you have a better app, you have a better process, you have better packaging of a product. Then, you know, DeFi is trying to recreate the backend, right? And the engine upon which the financial system runs so that, you know, JP Morgan's of this world can settle their trades on a version of a blockchain, whether it's public or permissioned or whatever, that's a little bit less relevant instead of, you know, running a very expensive and, you know, cumbersome back office process. So I see intrinsic value in this as a, basically as a tech sector and coming from the traditional finance experience, I tend to gravitate more towards products and, and businesses that cater to finance or technology around that. Like I don't have an, any edge in picking the next crypto game. That's not really our background, but then someone else coming, let's say from a gaming industry might be extremely well positioned to identify, you know, a, a crypto game that could disrupt the more traditional way of how games are being created and managed. So to me, the intrinsic value in all these things is, you know, are these businesses with real growth potential? And uh, could I apply a Warren Buffett type mentality and thinking of this as the Coca-Cola of the future and just hold it for 30 years? And obviously you can't, that's the, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm fast forwarding. But yeah, we do think of it as a subset of products and businesses that could be creating value to, to people beyond speculation and gambling. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I feel that it is incredibly important to understand where your strengths are. You know, you focus on DeFi because that's where your strengths are. So you should not take the generalistic approach and just be everything related to crypto because that won't get you far. But when we think about intrinsic value, that is kind of the beef of value that people easily understand that this is why something is valued. This is why it has uh, a market cap of X. But when we look at crypto, many times the intrinsic value does not directly correlate with what the market caps of these projects show. So I, I want to explore a little bit of what valuing these different projects and networks actually looks like outside of just purely intrinsic value, because there are also other components that affect it. And before we dive into DeFi specific examples, which I want to hear your thoughts on, I want to use a maybe higher level one just to understand your framework using ETH, as it is not a one-dimensional asset. Could you walk me through the different ways to look at it 
in terms of what components contribute to the value of something like ETH? That's a great question. And yeah, you, there are some crypto businesses and crypto projects with tokens that have cash flows, right? So in some cases you pay a fee to use someone's product. And then if I stake the token of the project, the, the fees, my portion of the fees accrues to me like a dividend. So that's very easy, but there is, there's a very small number of projects that operate this way. And it may not even be the most optimal way. More often you have, you know, either no revenue coming to token holders, and then there are ways how you can think about it, or it's not even about the revenue, right? It's a different mechanism, which brings us to ETH. And, uh, we actually, we actually published a couple of, um, articles, uh, on it on our, on our sub stack where ETH is kind of a multi-dimensional beast, because if you think of ETH as, you know, the gas that powers the Ethereum economy, then you can think of it as a commodity because it's not different, no different from oil or, or gas. You could think of it as uh, an app store that kind of makes money every time someone uses an app. You can think of it as a bond because you can, you know, stake it, de you deploy it and earn some interest on it. So there is, there are many different dimensions as to how you approach it. And then you try to combine this into some sort of cohesive model. And even once you do that, it doesn't really give you any clear predictive value over what's going to happen because yeah, if more people use Ethereum, yeah, that's great. And Ethereum will, you know, you burn ETH and it becomes, in theory, it becomes more valuable. You know, can Ethereum keep renting, so to speak, its, uh, foundations block space to L2s and the eigenlayers of this world? Yes, it can. And then it's earning additional revenue from that. And then if you stake it, you earn some yield. And then if a billion people start to use Ethereum, well, firstly, the fees go through the roof and no one, no one uses it. It's like the famous saying that, uh, no one goes to the restaurant, uh, because it's always full, right? So it's kind of the same, the same thing here. So then you need to think of it as, uh, all of these different things and you try to combine how they all fit together. But ultimately, I think this is a little bit less important than trying to get the growth story right. Because imagine that today or tomorrow, Ethereum introduces some ridiculous change to the tokenomics, which makes the token more reflexive, more valuable with intrinsic value, but it never scales beyond the current user base. Well, in that scenario, Ethereum should probably go down drastically because obviously it has a growth premium because no matter how you value it, and there are different methodologies. It no matter what anyone says, there is an implied premium for future growth, right? Because you, you value the Nasdaqs of this world differently to how you value low growth businesses. And here the logic is the same. So the most important thing is to understand, can more people be using this? And then the approach that we take is if there is a big usage, if there is a utility of a product or a, or an ecosystem, then usually people figure out a way how to monetize it. Unless you have a very clear signal that they don't want to do that. There was a, a big kind of event in our industry a few days or a few weeks ago, time, time flies very differently here. And in the case of a specific project, which raised money at an equity level, you know, they made the choice to introduce fees that benefit the equity holders and not the token holders. Maybe in the future, something else will change and token holders could start accruing value. But there you have a clear conflict, which has been widely discussed in our industry. And then maybe you need to rethink your approach because perhaps 
a specific business in crypto can grow in, in DeFi specifically can grow very, very well. But maybe if you're being told that no value will accrue to the token, well, then maybe you shouldn't be buying the token. So it's a very nuanced game. So it's a bet on growth, which then you try to refine to increase the probability of getting it right with regards to value accrual whilst being very flexible. Definitely a very big component of both Ethereum and most of these, as you well mentioned, very early stage VC or growth projects is implied future growth, which sometimes can be hard to quantify, but in other cases where you already have cash flows, you can Im implement discounted cash flow models or similar. But even if you do that for something like ETH, you often have a pretty big gap still between current value and market cap. And where ha having a lot of discussions with investors, there seems to be consensus around the fact that that difference is monetary premium. So the moneyness of ETH. What significance do you see the monetary premium uh, of ETH having on its valuation? It's a good question. I guess, well, it's hard. It's impossible to quantify it, right? It's a very, it's very much, it's, it's very much a judgment call, but I just tend to think about this a little bit differently because the, the mindiness is, is a very intangible and a very kind of sensitive item because I would argue if, right, I know when, yeah, maybe when the market crashed and, you know, ETH went to nine-ish hundred at, you know, at, at this bottom. Yeah, ETH, on one hand, you can say ETH is the asset into which you run from, from some of the other assets in the space. But I would argue if an asset can go down from four and a half K to less than one K in, you know, in about a year, mindiness is a, is a very questionable item, right? It clearly, just like Bitcoin, right? It doesn't trade as store of value. It trades like a mix of gold and, and tech, but it doesn't trade that way. So people may think about it that way, but the market acts differently and maybe it will change in the future, but that's not the case right now. And if, if you think about, let's say an ETF gets approved and, you know, the black rocks of this world go to private banks and start selling it, they will not be pitching Ethereum as a moneyness story. They will be pitching it as, you know, NASDAQ on steroids. So the way how I think about it is maybe it's a bit more conservative, but the way how we kind of think about it is this gap that you've described between the intrinsic value and, you know, the market cap. In my mind, that's the premium for future growth. And then if Ethereum is not able to grow fundamentally to close that gap, then it should go down in value quite, quite dramatically. So the mindiness, I don't know if the market acts that way. People, people act that way. So people might say, well, I think the market is going to crash and I'm going to sell my altcoins into ETH. But that's still a very small group of people. And clearly the market moves very differently because yes. If an altcoin is down 99%, your ETH may be down 50, 60%. That's still not a, you know, a storage of wealth and, you know, asset. I think, I think that is a really great take. And I tend to agree with most of what you just said there. NASDAQ on steroids is also a good way to describe how I also feel Ethereum will be pitched in these more traditional rooms. The, the moneyness argument is easy to shoot down, especially looking at shorter term. But, but the fact is like a counter argument from crypto native people would be, but yes, store value in the long term. But then again, that's not what we're used to money being. It shouldn't be something that you need to hold in the long term. It should have short term store of value as well, in addition to being a medium of exchange. So for me, I see ETH, the moneyness comes in from it being a medium of exchange. 
crypto native medium of exchange. But then again, I do agree with you in terms of the store of value. That's a bit questionable at this stage. So I would like to also emphasize the more quantifiable aspects, which are implied future growth, cash flows, ETH burn, everything that's happening there. Yeah, and you know, don't get me wrong. We're you know we're all you know ETH moxies, and we you know are heavy heavy believers. That's why we run an ETH yield fund, right? Helping people accumulate more ETH as they wait for you know for the bright future. But that's still mainly a bet on its growth rather than money. That's because also if we think it through, and let's say we fast forward ten years from now, and it hasn't grown at all, then it would also lose some of the money to premium because you have less developers building something new. You have less people in the ecosystem. It becomes less liquid, so on and so forth. And then you and I may be speaking in 10 years and we'll say, well, the store of value should be, I know, Solana or maybe it's BTC or maybe it's something that hasn't been invented yet. So these are all very reflective, reflexive uh, themes that coexist together, I think. Yeah, yeah, they do. And they're definitely, I think it should be more encouraged to be able to be uh, a maxi for a certain af- asset, like an ETH maxi, but then also critical towards certain ways of looking at it or certain theses around its value accrual. That should be more accepted, but it's a harsh world, <laughs> especially crypto Twitter. But, but thank you. That, that was a really great breakdown of how ETH can be looked at and where the value accrues. And now moving on to more not as multidimensional monsters, which would be the application layer and the projects built on top of something like ETH. Now, as DeFi specialists, I'd be very keen on hearing about your investment approach to these DeFi applications and especially how it differs between different verticals. Because although an individual project won't be as multidimensional as ETH, we have different verticals that when put together are very multidimensional. So if we take something like, for example, an insurance project versus a DEX, how does your like investment approach differ there? Yeah, we could, when it comes to DeFi, we think about this quite broadly in the sense that in order for a DeFi project to succeed, they need to have a great product, right? So the, if you think of a layer cake, they need, the top layer has to be great. They need to have a great middleware and the, you know, the, the low level kind of tech stack, right? So for example, when we think of DeFi, we think of data management, oracles, automation, rollups, and obviously the apps themselves. So it's kind of quite a broad reach that we do. I would say over the last, well, since we've launched our yield fund, we've probably played with and provided liquidity across 95, probably percent of all the legitimate apps in the space. So I'm not talking about the, you know, one day kind of projects. So we've seen them all and where we haven't provided liquidity, we probably know the people anyway. So we've looked at everything, we've seen everything and we know firsthand how difficult it is to build a sticky business in DeFi because these are you know, if you think of a, you know, gaming entertainment app on your phone, with the exception of maybe like one or two, you, you play with them and you get rid of them, right? And they're not very long lasting. So we're trying to focus on something that has an ecosystem durability kind of pool towards it. So for example, you know, I think it's impossible to imagine DeFi today without Uniswap. It's impossible to imagine the perpetuals industry in DeFi without, you know, the top three usual suspects such as you know, GMX, Synthetics, and UIDX. And every vertical has a champion, obviously. So the question that we, we ask ourselves is, okay, who are the champions? Who would be the new up-and-coming champions? And out of these champions, which ones are durable, resilient, and can have some value accrual in the long run? And it's sometimes as simple as that. 
betting on you know very new and very young and very early DeFi apps, if you're betting on them, so to speak, from a liquidity provisioning standpoint and yield seeking standpoint, then all you need to get right is the security, right? Are the smart contracts robust? In a liquid venture strategy, as in their growth, that's much harder to get right. And, and it's very hard for them to be sticky. So yeah, the most important thing is the way how we think about it, if, if this app, so to speak, disappears today, will the DeFi of today survive? And will the DeFi of the future can be successful without it? And if you find something where the answer is either an absolute, no, it cannot be successful without this app, or most likely, then that's something worth exploring. So would it be fair to say that you're looking to invest in the core infrastructure pieces of DeFi? Uh, yes, whilst infrastructure being a very broad, broad word. Yeah. So if it's a, if it's a small app with no clear, you know, roadmap and a few, you know, a few users, then probably we wouldn't consider it a fit. But if it's something where we know the team very well and they're building across multiple dimensions and multiple products, and there is a clear path towards an ecosystem mindset, then yes, that, that's something that could be very exciting. And then obviously we need to analyze specific sectors. So, you know, you brought up insurance. So we've been using DeFi insurance since day one to protect our, our yield and our liquidity capital. But I think we're one of the very few people who actually use it. Some of these projects have great teams, but they have not been successful yet. They're working on a lot of things and hopefully they would be, but it's pretty clear that there is no PMF um, so far beyond some very, very small number of exceptions. So then in that case, we'll say, okay, do we take a contrarian view and do we think there is a reason why it should change drastically? Uh, and then you add another layer of complexity to your investment thesis, and then you just see, and then you look at how things are valued, right? Because if you have something which may not have achieved PMF, but could achieve it and is trading like there is no tomorrow, and there are a few investments we've made that, that look like that, where something has PMF, but it's very small, it could grow, but people have given up and it's trading below the price of a seed deal today, even though a project may be a few years old and has, you know, real execution and real traction behind them. Yeah. And, and when these projects are early and you might have like an insurance protocol where you in reality are one of the only actual users. And I know there are a lot of projects out there where the actual amount of active users is just tiny and product market fit. It, it's, it's quite hard to see whether it's there or what the pain points are in, or what the bottlenecks are in unlocking that product market fit. And there are also a ton of different metrics that can be considered for early stage projects both financial and alternative KPIs. Which of these would you say in your approach can be seen as like the most indicative of a project's potential success or ability to reach product market fit? I would say it's cleaned up transaction data. So we don't care about TVL and, and all those items. We care about, you know, real people using those things for whatever purposes. And that's why I say cleaned up because you need to go and look on chain and see, because we know if you, quite a few places where it looks like there is a very high number of transactions, but actually it's two wallets just doing wash trading, right? Basically. So you need to be doing that as well. That's why you need a data kind of engineering department, so to speak. But leaving that aside, yeah, you need to see if people are actually using it. And then in some cases it's, you know, number of active loans. In some case, could be number of daily transactions if it's trading, you know, dollar traded volume, so on and so forth. So you look at those metrics, but again, you need to be very mindful because they're still very early stage businesses and 
if you just look at it from a data standpoint, you will miss the hockey stick, right? Because you will only react once the hockey stick materializes and you want to be positioned ahead of that. So it's always a combination of being forgiving in a sense for not having too much traction whilst having, you know, a strong belief that there could be a very radical improvement, exponential improvement should a specific fundamental uh, thing materialize. So quite often what we see is a team launches a v V1 with humble traction. They launch V2, marginally better traction. And then let's say they're working on V3, V4, whatever. So something like that we could potentially be investing in because then we see that the team is consistently working. They're shipping new code, new versions. They're trying and they're iterating and people are using their product. They haven't found the PMF yet, but we would say, okay, well, this team is top-notch in the space. We believe they can, can they have the, uh, the cash flow and the energy to keep iterating. And we can invest in this, in this business at evaluation, which is comparable to, again, where seed deals are taking place right now. So then it feels completely mispriced. And then some of them will never reach PMF, sadly, and you take a loss. But the ones that do, you, you reap ex exponential benefits. And obviously, the sweet spot is something that has quite a bit of traction by current industry standards. And then you just, great, well, they're doing as well as they could be doing given the current size of the industry, and we just need to keep supporting them so that when the industry grows, they'll grow alongside it. That's awesome. So you find the most alpha in digging into very granular transaction level data of these different protocols. Without that, you will be duped into things which look good on paper. It's like doing basic due diligence, right? Like they teach us in the books or show in the movies that, you know, if you want to invest in a factory, you should probably go and talk to, you know, to the janitor to see able to see how it works. Yeah, no, that, that is great to hear. And I'm smiling here because that is so much uh, aligned with Token Terminal's product roadmap as well. I don't know if you've noticed, we've put up the trending contracts views and uh, also going more and more towards as granular of a block explorer as possible. You can start from chain, project, contract, transaction, and really start digging into that and do pretty extensive analysis on it. So glad to hear that that is where you look as well. So <laughs> product market fit. Yeah, absolutely. You can't, I don't think you can run a business like this without the service like, like Token Terminal because it's just, there's just too much data and it's too, too messy. So you need to combine that with your own proprietary kind of on-chain analytics, but yeah, otherwise you should be blind. Yeah. Yeah, you would. Now, as we're speaking about liquid venture here mainly, and that's the biggest difference to like traditional venture investing, you've written in one of your posts, I read that your approach allows you to achieve a similar upside as in traditional early stage venture when investing, but in a de-risk fashion. How do you do that? Well, let's say today, let's say two years ago, you know, you invested in a, in a seed stage startup and you would have gotten, let's say 20, 25 million valuation for, for the first round, let's say 20. And then imagine you have, you've made, you know, hundreds of those investments. If we fast forward to today, you know, half of them are dead. If, and some are doing quite well fundamentally. And hopefully a few became phenomenal success, obviously. But then you would have a subset of positions in your portfolio where, where projects are doing quite well. They already have a token, right? So that narrows your subset. Uh, but the odds are their token is down 90% over the last couple of years. So if I take this, you know, mysterious, you know, project you invested into, then you invested probably when it was two or three people. Now that team may have seven, 10, 25 people. They probably have a product out there 
they probably have had this product in the market for, for a while. It probably, hopefully hasn't been hacked, which means they can ship and their security is decent. They have some traction. They have a clear pipeline for growth. They have a clear roadmap for growth, but their token is trading at, let's say 30 million. So then if I think about it, the amount of progress is you know, 10x, but the valuation increased 50% instead of 10x. So then what we're buying, we're paying slightly more than you paid two years ago, but we're buying an established, quote unquote, established business and not just a person sitting in their garage with a laptop. So that's our thinking because obviously in the venture world, you know, you do this early stage deals and then a lot of them die and you don't care because you just need a few to succeed phenomenally. And imagine that you could be investing at pretty much a comparable valuation, but at a much more mature stage, which probably means your loss ratio will be much smaller because the earliest, you know, an early stage company gets set up, you know, founders quarrel and it falls apart, right? We're already past that stage. We're past the stage where they launch and they get hacked on day one. We're past their stage that it's a scam. So we're past a few of those stages. So the execution is de-risk to a certain extent, but the valuation that you're paying right now in this market, and it can change in, in a month if, if the bull market comes back, what the valuation you're paying right now doesn't reflect that level of maturity, which on a risk-adjusted basis represents, in our opinion, an attractive rate of return, potential rate of return. That's very good. I tend to say that based on like all the conversations I've, I've had and also having worked in traditional venture before getting into crypto, I feel like the pros of liquid venture just outweigh the cons by so much. I think it, it is just a great opportunity for investors to be able to have it be liquid. We're biased. We think so clearly as well. I think the only nuance to that would be that it's like if you come and say, hey, I'm a tech investor, what does it mean, right? There are 20, 30, 100 different sectors within that. So I think if someone that, you know, if someone has a skill and an eye to do venture, they'll do obviously phenomenally well. They just need to be able to wait 10 years. And I think these days, if you do venture in a highly specialized manner, highly specialized manner, within sectors, themes, or ecosystems, which are less developed, you'll do phenomenally well. But if you think of it as a, you know, as a fund, then yeah, all things being equal, a fund, because I'm going to look at venture fund has just a one-year lockup, right? So then... We believe that the upside of that is that you can choose when you want to exit. So you don't need to ride many crypto cycles. If you think the market is stopping out, it's your call. You're welcome to, you know, migrate in our uh, market neutral fund. <laughs> so yeah, given where we are today, uh, Liquid Venture feels like it makes more sense. When we get to the top of the market at the next cycle, it will make much less sense. And that's when we need to be, you know, defensive. And then we'll, you know, rotate out of the, you know, high risk names and go into the much earlier ones or something like a BTC. Yeah. I think Liquid Venture also just speeds up the venture cycles so much in the sense that old school way, it, it takes a long time to see if a fund manager has actually performed well or poorly and they can raise fund one, raise fund two without having fund one's results out there. So they're able to do that. But now I'd say poorly performing asset managers kind of get burned out of the space uh, because you're results are more real time, which is, I would say, also a positive development. Yeah, it just cleans up the sector faster. Exactly, exactly. Now, I would love to understand your approach to investing through some case example to really get mm -hmm. how you invest and how you work with the projects you invest in. So do you have any project in mind that you'd be able to speak about 
your thesis behind why you invested and how you work with them? Sure. Well, there are projects where we're very actively involved. So, you know, for, for example, when it comes to some lending protocols, this could be, you know, more for Gearbox and, and others. We're very actively involved on the risk management side, you know, figuring out how to help with setting up liquidation parameters, the lending ratios, taking it as a function of DeFi liquidity, so on and so forth. In some cases, we could be potentially less involved whilst being potentially a, a, a user of that, of that project. So one of the case studies that I think is very interesting to share is a project called uh, Gelato, which acts as a backbone and middleware to a great many DeFi protocols. The reason why I'm excited about that one in particular is because instead of making an individual bet on a specific DeFi app that could exist and could succeed, we, we invested in an amazing team that has a product that is being very widely used across the ecosystem. That product clearly adds value. You can pretty easily make a case why and how that could scale very actively and the great example would be a project called Arrakis, which, which spun out of Gelato, where uh, it allows you to automatically manage, you know, Uniswap v3 and in the future v4 ranges. So our thesis is that DeFi will become incre incre increasingly more professionalized and as a result, in increasingly more automated. And you will not be able to just go and put money in the pool and then two days later move it manually. You need to automate all of that. And that's very hard to do. It's very hard to do if you are a hedge fund and it's very hard to do if you're building a vault that sits on top of Uniswap. So what Gelato allows you to do is allows you to, to a certain extent, forget about the pain of setting up your own full automation integration infrastructure. You can just plug into that. It's like Zapier in the traditional world where it's an you know, API of APIs effectively. And through them, you can do a lot of things. We very much believe in the future of optimistic rollups and kind of super apps so we've seen that on Optimism, some apps already created their own chain, you know. And if we live in a world with a great many of these rollups, then, you know, something like Gelada would allow you in the future to, to spin it up as a service, right? So if you can abstract away the complexities of middleware, DeFi engineering, you can onboard a lot more people and you can enable the next generation of DeFi apps. And, you know, we've known the team for a long time. And yeah, this is a particular case study where we feel extremely excited because it ticks all the boxes we can, we can think of. And it's just a structural play that makes sense. And, you know, an example of the reason why, you know, the reason why we're able to get this level of confidence is because we know a lot of the, of their customers because we're providing liquidity to those DeFi apps. So we can go and get their feedback. And a lot of them will tell us that, you know, these people use a lot of different apps and services. And in some cases they would say, yeah, we use this app and service, which is very famous, but actually I think we're overpaying. I think we're going to switch. And in some other case, they say, we use something which we don't really care about. And there are some things which they can't live without if we're being very dramatic. So that's, that, that, that's one of those examples where you just very horizontally exposed to, to a very broad theme. That, that is a great case. I like Gelato. Thank you for sharing that one. Now. We spoke about how Liquid Venture allows you to achieve returns in a de-risk fashion. Now, I want to zoom out a bit and speak about your general approach to managing risks in DeFi when investing. So how do you 
evaluate and manage them because there is an abundance of risks in this space. So what, what does your risk management process look like? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I think when it comes to something like liquid venture, you apply a very traditional risk management framework. You're like, okay, so does this token have any liquidity? Is the team legitimate? Do they have the runway? Do they have the cash? So on and so forth. That that's very straightforward. The tricky part is on the smart contract analysis, because nothing is safe in crypto. And we, it seems that we have traded the counterparty risk of CFI and TradFi towards the cybersecurity risk. So you want to make sure that when you're putting your, you know, your capital into a DeFi app, whether to provide liquidity or to buy their token, then you need to have a view on the level of risk in their smart contracts. And having been providing liquidity for, for such a long time, we had to design uh, a framework as to how to think about that, because it's not enough to read some auditor, auditor's report and hope they, they caught all the bugs. It's uh, not enough to talk to the team and say, well, they're smart guys. I'm sure they figured it out. What you need to do is go kind of much more holistically around that. And at some point we came to the conclusion that there is no way to have full confidence around um, your ability to read the smart contract and identify all the bugs. So we've decided to apply a, a different approach and a very much a probabilistic approach towards that. So we have designed our own framework as to how our team goes and analyzes you know, 50 different parameters around the DeFi apps. You know, if the oracles are involved, you know, how is the oracle risk managed? You know, what is, what is the backup? What is the process around that? On the back of that, we assign, you, you get scores, you know, 50 points out of a hundred, you know, 90, 30, whatever. And that defines whether you are high, medium, or low level of risk. So kind of triple H will be triple C. So in our yield funds, that defines the allocation in our portfolio that we make towards that specific protocol. Because whilst you can never have full confidence whether something is very safe or very unsafe, with enough experience, with enough data points, you can have a probabilistic view of that. So that served us extremely well in our, in our kind of yield-seeking endeavors. And if we find an, a, a DeFi business which we're excited about from a token standpoint, but let's say they, they score, you know, double C, on our risk framework, then probably it's not a great idea to be investing because then there is a quite a high probability of a smart contract hack. And then, you know, you can kiss your token goodbye. So that's something that took us a while to develop in house. And that's why we have a sizable team of people working on this nonstop. But I think without that, you can't really be making educational kind of bets on DeFi, unless of course you're only investing in the in the largest name and you're taking the risk for granted. You're saying, well, if the Aves and the compounds and the e-swaps of this world have been around for such a long time and they haven't been hacked, we think the risk is okay to accept. Then of course you can spend much less time on this, but then you're only going after the names which have potentially have less upside than some of the other opportunities in the space. Yeah. You mentioned that we're using quite a lot of resources internally to put this risk index together, which I can fully understand. Are you currently only using it internally or do you have ambitions to kind of spin it out into something more of like what we'd be used to seeing in traditional world, like the standard and Poor's or Moody's risk framework? That's a great question. We, we keep debating this internally pretty much all the time. So originally we did think about publishing it as a standalone kind of data source, 
But at that time, we didn't have the capacity to be both money managers and, and run a, you know, a data business. We've spoken to quite a few people about this. There's been some appetite. We've published some writing on our, you know, on our Substack about how, as to how we think about it. So for now, it's been a purely internal tool. There is a kind of version of the future where this could be published either openly or in a collaboration with a rating agency or something like that. Obviously, it doesn't make sense for us to take our edge and kind of, and for a hundred dollars a month or whatever, sell it, sell it to our competition. But where we have applied it is kind of behind the scenes in a sense, where we would, the DeFi businesses that we work with, we would just work with them and give them feedback and try to help them wherever we can to improve certain things to make it more, more secure and more robust. And we are working on some DeFi native projects where those risk methodologies will sit at their core, but they will still be, you know, a power within the engine that fuels the specific project. Um, because yeah, running a data business is just very different from running a, you know, a fund management business. 100%. I, I think that does actually sound good to, at the moment, keep it as a part of your kind of value add toolkit that you have for projects. So it makes sense to not spin it out and give up that edge. We'll see. <laughs> at least for now, <laughs> the way you explained yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, kind of two questions to start wrapping this up. I want to get your take on what you in the current market see as the most interesting trends or market sectors that stand out or alternatively are not getting the attention that they deserve? Well, that's a, that's a difficult question. <laughs> well, the, the fresh one in my mind is probably the, the Solana universe. So I just got back from Breakpoint last night and the energy there is pretty phenomenal. So I think a lot of people wrote Solana down and wrote it off, you know, on the back of the events of last year. And that's probably not the right decision. There are a lot of people who are bullish on Solana, there are a lot of people building there, but I think that their universe is actually larger or should be larger. So I think that's an important one to keep in mind and not be dismissive of it. That's the one that comes to mind very actively. And then even if I go back to, like, if we look at DeFi today, everyone knows, like in our industry, everyone knows what DeFi is. A lot of people are using it. But if you look at how these things uh, trade and the actual traction, it's terrible, right? I mean, whatever metrics you use across DeFi, they're down 50, 90% over the last couple of years. All these tokens are heavily down. So even though everyone knows about it, it doesn't feel that people are betting on them recovering meaningfully. And I think that's, that's probably an oversight because no matter what we say about the inefficiencies of DeFi, it still remains the largest sector with with large PMF in our industry beyond obviously the tech specific solutions. So that's, yeah, which is not very surprising you know, that that's what we focus our attention on, but that would be kind of my intuitive reaction. Yeah, that's well said. I think this year's Breakpoint was probably the first crypto conference that actually resulted in like positive price action post-conference. So that is also first time that's happened. Well, the conference isn't over yet. It's not over yet. So let's see. Oh, spoke too early. <laughs> There we go. Okay, but what are the biggest challenges that you as a fund face in this space then? Because, you know, uh, the whole space is still developing. Tooling, it might not yet be there. You're doing a lot of things for the first time in a way because processes aren't so established. What are you guys struggling with? It's a good question. I think, you know, everything that's a challenge is an opportunity on the other kind of, on the other side, right? 
So yes, it's very undeveloped. You know, there is the signal to noise ratio needs to be consistently optimized. Data tooling has to be developed in house. It's harder to find clean source of information and, and just get clarity. But that's why the opportunity is here. I had a very interesting conversation with, with someone who then became an investor in our fund. And I was telling them how these liquid tokens work, why you can think of them as kind of quasi equity, even though technically they're not securities. And the person being quite an experienced financial investor asked me to send some broker sell side reports on, on some of these names that we like. And I said that, well, I can't really send you anything because yes, there are some kind of outlets that write about these things, but it's not the format that you would expect. It's more of a product overview rather than a stock initiation report. And the moment that person heard me say that, he said, okay, I'm investing. And I asked, well, that's an unusual reason to say that you're excited. And he said, yeah, well, I've been investing in emerging markets for a long time. And when the sell side isn't even covering a region, it probably means there is a lot of alpha that's left there. So if I fast forward to whatever, again, five, 10, whatever many years from now, and we are an extremely buttoned up industry with very structured research information flow and so on and so forth, then, well, it's going to be less exciting. It's going to be much more scalable and we'll probably have much more scale, but it's not going to be the same level of excitement as we have today where, you know, you meet software developers at the conference, you, you know, troubleshoot their code or you give them feedback and then, you know, that turns into a business with a real quasi equity in, in quite a short period of time. So all these challenges are an opportunity, you know, the challenge is obviously that things are, things move very fast, right? And you can't have, you, people say that they have, you know, 10 year investment horizons, but even venture funds recycle their assets more frequently than that if there, if there is enough liquidity to do so, because yeah, if the industry is, you know, like DeFi is about five years old, Ethereum is slightly older. So then it's very hard to take a 10 year view on something that only existed for five years. So you need to be constantly on your feet and you need to be, you need to feel where the wind is flowing, uh, where the wind is blowing and, and adapt. And that takes a lot of energy. And that's why we think you need to be an operator in the space, because if you're not an operator, you're not going to be feeling it as quickly. So it's like the data point I can share is when we launched our yield fund, hundred percent of our capital has been on Ethereum as a blockchain. And then they shifted very, very radically. And it went to some, some of the other EVM chains, stayed there for, let's say a year. And now we have zero location to these chains because we feel that DeFi ecosystem on that specific chain may be dead. Whilst let's say the location we have to the optimisms and the arbitrums of this world is pretty meaningful. So that, that tells us where the users are going because we are one of the users and I think that any job is converting a challenge into an opportunity and kind of that's what we're trying to do. And then the only real cost is the amount of time you, you know, you miss out on sleep. <laughs> that's exactly how it is. That's a great note to end on as well. Yevgeny, this was a really great discussion. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much. We should do this again in the near future. I want to speak about Dow treasury management with you, dive into that topic as well. And, you know, there are so many parts of DeFi that we haven't yet touched on. So there's a lot we could still do, but. For this session, thank you so much for shedding light on how Re7 approached the market and your thoughts on valuing these different projects. Thank you for having me and looking forward to doing this again. Thanks, everyone.